Hey, everybody. This is Bruce Kelly hosting another episode of the Investment News Podcast. Jeff Benjamin is away this week, so I'm just flying solo. Let's see how I do with all that. But first, before we get into anything, we want to thank our sponsor, Allworth Financial, and its State of the Industry Podcast. Uh, you'll be hearing a little bit more about them later. We have two great guests this afternoon. First off, uh, waiting in the wings here is Frank Kinjemi, a veteran financial advisor whom I've had the pleasure of talking to and knowing uh, for many years, for 10, 15, maybe 20 years or something like that. We've known each other a long time. And he is a very opinionated guy and a smart guy. And he wanted to, he called me up a week or two ago and, and was distressed about what COVID is doing to the, the whole work of financial advisors. And I think that hasn't gotten enough attention. I agree with Frank. And we'll be getting into that shortly. And then after Frank, we have a woman named Lori Varnell from Texas. She's the chief of the Elder Financial Fraud Unit for Tarrant County, Texas, which is in the Fort Worth area, I believe. And um, uh, she has some fascinating insights into elder fraud, which is a huge area of concern for financial advisors as well. So just to, to, with all that as an introduction, Frank, how are you today, Mr. Kinjemi? I am very well. Thank you very much for asking. And um, thank you for all those accolades at the beginning of the intro. I appreciate that greatly. And I appreciate you. Well, it's all true. It's all true, Frank. Uh, Frank, before we get into this topic that, that you want to talk about and that I want to talk to you about, um, of COVID and its, its impact kind of widespread on the industry. Um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Give, give the listeners a little sense of who you are, you know, your career, how long you've been in it, some of your areas of concern and the like. Well, I originally got licensed in, uh, I believe it was 1985, 86. And uh, it, uh, immediately um, the firm that I was licensed uh, with uh, uh, took a hit in regards to the uh, Kohlberg Kravitz store warrants with Michael Milken. And I had to make a choice whether to stand by my clients or stand by the firm. So um, I stood by my clients. I got terminated and then I went independent. And at that time there weren't, I think there was maybe one or two independent broker dealers, but. So you uh, entered the, you entered the brokerage business right at the height of the junk bond boom, right? Yep. Yeah, of the eighties, uh, and your yeah. firm was kind of shoving product down your throat, right? You wanted to, you had clients in bond funds that you wanted to sell, and you, your firm wouldn't let them, wouldn't let you sell it, right? Right. They would not let me do free exchange to other types of funds, either government bond funds or tax exempt, anything to get my clients out of the way. And so I did get to alphabetically. I got to M, and then they terminated me. <laughs> That's your introduction to the securities industry, huh? Well, I mean, you know, um, it certainly had, you know, given me a lot of uh, pause and it serves me well today because I don't really, um, I I, I don't tolerate BS that much. And most of the stuff that's out there today, you know, I could take that period and fast forward it right to where we are now with all the product introduction and uh, you know, it's funny, I was once at an LPL conference and Leon Black was there and I asked him a question that he would not answer. He told me I was a smart guy, but he wouldn't answer the question. And the question that I have for all product companies is, do they spend as much money developing these products that they want us to sell? And do they spend as much money 
giving advisors training on those products. Right. I mean, we recently had a bunch of advisors that we had to let go because they had ETNs in the client portfolios. They didn't know what ETNs could do when the market went down. Right. Well, now they're terminated from the industry and the company had to pay out like 80 million to make their clients whole. I think they know what ETNs do now. Right. And so, what's the, what is the name of your practice? And you're part of a big group too, if you could get into that a little bit, please. Well, uh, my practice is called Benefactor Financial. It's a Bill O'Reilly thing. You know, let us be a factor in your family's life. Well, let us be a factor in your life. Right. Um, and so, and that's what we try to do. We try to be advocates for our clients. You know, we can make money, we can sell products, but if you do both of those things, can you still help your client and still, you know, fight the good fight, make sure they come out all right. Right. So as, as someone who's had a lot of experience with, I mean, how many market, the, the, the market crash of 88, the market crash of, of uh, 2000, 2009, 98, 2009, right. This most recent one in, in 2020, you've seen it all just about. Um, And almost four decades, almost four decades. My goodness. So what is happening with COVID and its impact that doesn't get enough attention in the financial advice industry right now with advisors as kind of the human kind of consequence of advisors and their clients and and some whom are, are, are sick and very seriously ill with this right now. Yeah, and, and some of them are dead. One of the most important things uh, that we realized after the first couple of deaths in the practice is that a lot of our clients didn't have estate plans uh, drawn up. If you could imagine people with a high net worth who don't have wills, health care proxies, power of attorneys, right. uh, health directive, guardian, uh, uh, pre-need guardians. I've had a couple of clients where their kids totally were able to take advantage of them because they didn't have a single document like a pre-need guardianship to be able to put themselves in a position where they could fight for themselves. Um, there's a lot of crazy things and a lot of weird things that have happened with COVID. It's extrapolated a lot of nuances in the industry. One of the things is, um, you know, people needed help. They needed all kinds of professional help, whether it was medical help or even getting food in some places and things like that. And so we want, we wound up turning into a resource uh, office for uh, people that would call us and they would be in a desperate situation trying to get them services or trying to get them uh, any kind of resources that they needed. Right. And so um, I would have to say those are the two biggest things, uh, making sure people have their estate plans done, uh, making sure that they are in power to take care of each other. And in some cases, even the children being able to take care of their parents, you know, uh, God forbid uh, your parents have a situation where they don't die, but they can't talk to you. I mean, how do you take control of that unless you're legally empowered? So that's a big thing. And I think the industry could probably do a better job of educating uh, the consumer about why that's so important. What about on the human side, though, Frank, the relationships between people, um, clients that you've had who've had people in their family get sick uh, and maybe and maybe uh, die from the from the disease and the like. What about the human toll on financial advisors here, do you think? Well, you know, I did call you a little stressed out because I did have a a situation last week where it's, you know, financial advisors are really great at planning for everything. They're just not really good for planning everything happening at the same time. 
And I think that- <laughs> Can you extrapolate on that a little bit more? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, um, you could have, um, uh, let's say, okay, you, you can't go to work. And if you weren't fortunate enough to still get paid while you were home, you've got money problems. So now you got to tap your portfolio. And then, uh, God forbid, you should have uh, an accident on top of that, and you right. don't have a caregiver or a spouse or children. That's a problem. And so a lot of times we found people who, uh, through no fault of their own, wound up in situations where they needed help. And so um, I'm licensed in, I don't even know how many, 30-something states. And um, right. this summer, June and July, I, I was in 17 states. I have not stopped seeing clients either at their business or at their home through the entire COVID time. That's just me. I'm not going to say everybody's me, right. but these people pay me a lot of money, not just to manage their money, but to care. And I do care and they know I care. And so my job was to get out there and do my reviews, make sure people knew what was going on, knew what they had. I have clients that have been around forever and they still don't know, you know, everything that we can bring to the table unless right. something happens to them. Then they find out, you know, what we're really capable of. So I think that um, a lot of times advisor gets bad breaks because, you know, uh, right now um, advisor hub is going to have a, a conference and they want to talk about, you know, COVID and they want to talk about ESG and they want to talk about product and they want, are any of the broker dealers or any of the companies actually reaching out and are they talking to their advisors individually to see where their heads are at and where their families are at? Because I talk to a lot of advisors all the time in my group, as you mentioned before, we have approximately 60 advisors spread right. out around 20 states, you know, and it's, I think it's around $3 billion in assets we manage. It's a lot of money, but again, you know, we're people and the people we service are people. And um, you're basically, you know, you're in a people business. You're not in a money management right. business. That's just, that's just what we do. That's why they hire us. But, you know, you have to be able to emote and you have to, you know, put your pen down, put your computer down when somebody calls you and they're losing their stuff on the phone because emotionally they don't, you know, mentally, emotionally, they're done. They don't know what to do. That's why they're calling you about something that's not financial. They're calling you because... You're either a friend or somebody that they know, somebody that they can trust. Or someone they trust. Uh, that was my last thing. I never put that first because the regulators <laughs> don't like that. But yeah. Well, I, I'm not regulated, so I can say it, Frank. Wait, okay? wait, wait. So I'll tell you, you know, Katie is at uh, FINRA now, and she was my compliance officer at oh. LPL. So it's a great person I can pick up the phone and call, just like old times. Right. How, in a, compared to, a, say, a, a regular year, a pre-COVID year, how has the stress level of, say, you or your these 60 advisors you have, what's the stress level like in the COVID area compared to the pre-COVID era? Is it twice as much, three times as much? How, how, how could you characterize it that way? I don't know if you can characterize it, you know, like to the 10th power or something like right. that. But um, uh, let's take, um, New York city because right. I am, I've been here for the last four or five days. I mean, today I went to Washington DC to see a client, but I mean, um, I've been in New York for a week. Now, if you want to compare New York city weirdness 
with Florida weirdness, that's to the 10th power. Because I was actually in Manhattan yesterday. And I have to tell you, I lived in New York my entire life. And it was just a little weird moving around. But, you know, somebody asked me for my vaccination card. And I pulled out my Florida driver's license. And they told me to keep moving. <laughs> but, how, but, this, but the personal stress, though, Frank, how, how, would, you, how would you state, how would you characterize it? Well, my son, uh, who is also in the business, who is yes. 40, um, he has always called me Mr. Stress. As a matter of fact, I have cards from him going all the way back when he was in grade school about, Dad, you know, you need to calm down. So um, in my adult life now, uh, next, uh, I'm sorry, we're in November. This month, I'm going to be 69 years young. Oh, very good. And um, yeah, I don't do that much stress anymore. You know, uh, right. my mother used to say it's better to give than receive especially when it comes to heart attacks. So I'm pretty good in that business now. I'm, I'm good at giving heart attacks, but I'm not having any. I think that people are afraid. And it's, and I think I related this to you once before. After 9-11, New York City, people weren't afraid. They were pissed off. They were angry. They were motivated. With COVID, they're fearful. Fearful of something they can't see. Fearful of misinformation that they've received. And fearful just because um, they just don't know, okay? And when you don't know something, yeah, okay, I would be fearful of it. But again, logic and common sense should be ruling the day instead of some of these other thought patterns or thought right. leaders that are out there. And you don't see it because people don't know what to expect. That's right. my favorite space to, to occupy um, because I'm always you know, ready for anything. I've seen so many things um, over the course of my life, uh, sickness and illness in my own family, not me, but my own family, and then also the people closest to me. Right. You know, it's very hard to judge how people are going to rely, uh, uh, relate in a given situation. You know, people always say, well, you know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. Yeah, but when it happens, it's different. And this has been on a protracted basis now for almost two years. So I will share with you that I was on an Italian cruise ship with 5,000 Chinese people back in December of 2019, and I got COVID. Right. I wasn't fashionable when I got it, but I had it already. And so uh -huh. for me, there's a redundancy because, you know, I went to an SAI conference out in California in uh, March of 2020, and that's when we started to see it. We started to see it gravitate towards the East Coast. And by the time we got back to Florida at the end of March, it was like... You know, all hell is breaking loose. Right. But <clears throat> um, clients don't know what to expect. Most of them thought it was going to be the end of the world and the market was going to crap out and they were going to lose all their money. Uh, so, of course, you know, you do the conversation where, you know, you got to stay in the market because, you know, you can't get out and it's this and that and the other thing or whatever you're telling your clients. I don't know. But 99% of them are glad that they did. The market is not their problem now. Now right. it's all these other things, you know, schools, kids. Right. I mean, it's 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 this our conversations on a daily basis doesn't have anything to do with. Well, I can't say it doesn't have anything to do with your life. It has everything to everything to do with your daily life and how you go about, um, you know, just whatever it is you want to do, whether it's travel or eating out or, you know, just recently I just went to see Venom at the movies. That was, you know, great to be able to, you know, go out and go to the movie, a simple thing like that you know just enjoy the little things in life that we take for granted 
I would say that is the thing that probably, you know, bothers people. But, you know, a lot of people make jokes about it now. And that's the thing. Uh, because they're fearful of what they say. Even comedians, they're fearful of even telling jokes. Right. Um, I've seen educators come back to me and say, hey, you know, we can hardly say anything in class now. We just teach the um, outline and we keep moving. And so, and that's the thing today. So we don't, we never want to lose our work ethic in this country. We never want to lose our sense of humor in this country. We never want to lose our, you know, sense of purpose or humanity where we care about other people. So not being able to see other people smile, not being able to hug other people, you know, this is, it's just a lot of weird stuff and a lot of people deal with it differently. That's all. Right. So to kind of sum up, Frank, it seems like there's, there, there's two approaches if I can distill what you're talking about a little bit. Um, the, the first is kind of the practical financial, what can financial advisors do, <laughs> right? So there's the practical side is, is estate planning and your financial plan, it seems, right? And yes. your financial plan is probably, you know, if you're working with an advisor, it's probably been done recently, but your estate plan is something that people have to take seriously. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then also all kinds of communication. Well, right? see, I that's mean, you're, the it thing. seems like you're throwing communication at people, which is something well, you yeah. kind of do naturally. Well, you're we, a communicator. We, you're a paisan. Yeah, you know, but we did th- those th- those two things. Am I missing something else out? Missing no, something I mean, else, did, Frank? We did outreach on the estate planning and the uh, you know having um, uh, power of attorney and healthcare proxies and stuff like that. Uh, but we also pushed out um, mail. Uh, because I'm in so many states, I had been doing uh, Zoom conferences for a number of years. So it was easy for me to start scheduling my appointments, uh, you know, my reviews online. But it's not exactly the same thing. And there's still a lot of older clients or handicapped clients that don't, you know, can't access technology. Right. So that's part of the reason why I, you know, got in my car and I, I just went out. But I really haven't changed too much of my uh, routine uh, over the last two years. Um, right. I don't have them lined up in my office. I never did. I go out and see people uh, at their business. We have pension plans. We see their employees. We go to their home because if you're going to know your client, your client can't BS you in your office because his wife and the kids are there calling them on their crap, uh, you know, during family meeting. So it's, we definitely know who our clients are and we certainly know where they live. And so um, what I tried to do was not change what I had been doing all these years. And that was very difficult. Estate planning and communication people and lots of driving, it seems. Uh, Well, how to get by as an advisor in this era of COVID and keeping your sanity too, Frank, right? Well, your clients are going to know you care if you are always there for them. Right. I think that's a good way to put it, my friend. Yes. Uh, Frank, thanks so much for dropping by our podcast today. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure for me to be in your company, Brucey. (laughs) Uh, You're something else. Thanks again, Frank. Bye. All right. Love you. With so many great options for you podcast listeners, how do you decide which ones are worth your time? When it comes to the financial sector, you've got to choose wisely. One informative option for financial advisors is the State of the Industry podcast hosted by Allworth Financial's co-founder, Scott Hanson. What makes it different? 
With almost 30 years as an advisor and having completed 15 deals in just the last four years, Hansen has been on the front lines of our rapidly changing industry. On the State of the Industry podcast, you'll learn about firm valuations, succession planning, the differences between firm aggregators and integrators, and even what impact 2022's possibly massive capital gains tax increase could have on the value of your firm. The State of the Industry podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at allworthpartners.com. And we're back, everybody. And now we have Lori Varnell with us to speak about elder fraud. And this is very interesting. She is the chief, as I understand it, the chief of the elder financial fraud unit for Tarrant County, Texas, which is in the Fort Worth area. And I spoke with Lori this week um, about uh, a case down there, uh, which which had involved three life sentences for a former financial advisor who who ripped off uh, uh, several hundred clients. Uh, it's it seems of something like thirty million dollars. So we're going to talk about elder fraud with Lori today and this Doc Gallagher case, this former advisor, and and Lori's coming to us from an airport too. So she's just gotten through the TSA and everything. <laughs> How are you doing today, Lori? <laughs> Well, I feel a little patted down, but I'm good. <laughs> What's a little patting amongst friends? Exactly. <laughs> um, Lori, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be or and the, the head of this unit? And what is the Elder Financial Fraud Unit uh, for, for Tarrant County? And Tarrant is in, it's a Dallas-Fort Worth area, right? Right. We're in Fort Worth. And okay. um, let's see, I'm a 20 year prosecutor. My history, I'm, I graduated from law school. I had a CPA at the time and really wanted to do something where I would use both of those. And I found my niche and then my calling to be in prosecution. And I did, uh, let's see, 15 years at the state doing uh, prosecuting economic crimes and child pornography, and then went and did the same thing at the feds for a couple of years and then came back to head the elder financial fraud unit at the DA's office. And um, my district attorney, Sharon Wilson, started this unit in 2017 so that um, when elderly people were taken advantage of, it wouldn't get swept under the carpet or called a civil matter as it very often is. Um, And that that there's a special emphasis on that in my county. And we go around educating law enforcement. We work with our nonprofit partners and the probate bar in order to make sure that nobody falls through the cracks. I think that's fascinating because, you know, I my knowledge of this goes back to my, you know, just essentially joining investment news in 2000 as a as a reporter and a, a former school teacher, I spent 10 years teaching school and then I got into the reporting game and then I started writing about this and writing about financial fraud. And what's the evolution of the thinking and the understanding about elder fraud been over the past 10 or 20 years as, as your career has gone on before we get well, into the whole Doc Gallagher case? Well, I think that once someone brought out some sort of an instrument, a legal instrument, such as a power of attorney or a trust or something like that, as far as law enforcement was concerned, it now turned into a civil matter. And um, so therefore, the power that comes to bear with the police investigating and the prosecutor prosecuting was all left on the table, so to speak. Uh, And elder 
individuals were left to care for themselves as far as seeking justice for crimes that were committed against them. And I think over time, the uh, enough noise was made by the probate bars and uh, by uh, the silver hair legislature in, in Texas. And now I think that it is at the forefront, uh, much like like identity theft of the of the 90s right. was. Right. It's now the crime du jour. So um, I am at the, the forefront, the tip of the spear, so to speak. We um, educate our law enforcement officers to try and understand dementia and its effects on individuals, right. exactly. as well as um, how legal instruments actually give us more power than they do less power. So in other words, I would rather have a legal instrument that limits someone's authority than not. And so now they're beginning to see that. And it's been very exciting to see the results, as you've heard of all the way in New York. Uh, we've, you've heard about the three life sentences we just got. And hopefully that sends a strong message that we are taking it seriously. We are prosecuting it. And don't think because someone's elderly, you're just going to get away with it. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's what struck me about the headlines for this this guy, Doc Gallagher. He was he was kind of an advisor, if I remember, you know, he was with FINRA broker dealers in the 90s. Then he started his own RIA, it seems. And he had a register, you know, he was registered with the state or the SEC for five or six years. Then like 10 or 11 years ago, he just dropped all his licenses. But he but he kept, um, you know, pretending to be an advisor. His name is Doc Gallagher. And he kind of wrapped him. He's one of these guys that was an affinity fraud case, it seemed to me. And he was taking advantage of people in his Christian community in Texas. But the thing that got me about this that really, and you and I talked about this when I wrote the article, three life sentences. I mean, you know, going again, going back to the credit crisis, when I really first became familiar uh, with this stuff, with this type of fraud, it was it was tough to get really stiff uh, penalties against guys like this. Um, and that yes. was one of the big complaints um, from the plaintiff's bar at the time, you know, I mean, Madoff got 150 years, but he was Madoff. But there are a lot of guys who didn't get the, the who, who committed these kinds of crimes, Ponzi schemes involving the elderly and affinity groups who, who didn't get the book thrown at him. But you got the book thrown at this guy, Doc Gallagher. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So one of the things that I think that's that, that needs to happen is we as prosecutors need to start taking these things to trial and um, let the community tell us what they're worth. Um, and so uh, one of the things that made made sense to me in this case is he pled guilty, but went open to the judge. And in Texas, we don't have we don't have jury sentencing. Um, so, in a, I mean, we have juries. So we basically we have two trials. We have the trial right. that happens with uh, the guilt innocence portion and then the jury has a range and that range goes in a first degree felony from five to 99 or life and so even on uh what you would call an, an, a money crime or an economic crime where there's no actual physical harm you could still get life in texas and so um huh. when you go when you plead open and you have that wide range available the sentencing is where the big battle becomes. And so I brought it all to bear in that sentencing hearing. I brought 16 victims, two experts, and uh, asked the judge for life because this guy earned it. And Could there's more battles about to this be Doc Gallagher guy and, and who was he and what did he do and, and, and the like? And how did, he, well, how did he take advantage of, of these people? And then what can finance, because quite often it's financial advisors um, who yes. alert the authorities, right? about 
the bad guys in their business? Well, Doc Gallagher started out and was born uh, in the Northeast. He got his uh, doctoral degree from Brown University, and it's in philosophy. Interestingly enough, his thesis was called The Concept of Blame. Then he moved to Waco, Texas, which is the home of the Baylor Bears. And uh, he was some sort of a teacher there, although I don't think it was at Baylor. And then moved to the DFW area and began to get his securities licenses. He also got a, an insurance license. Then around the year 2000, they figured out that he was referring people to a Ponzi scheme and they took his securities license away. And But he still maintained his insurance license. And using that insurance license, he kept his agency open. And uh, he began selling, if you'll recall, viaticals, which right. were, you know, they're very risky investments, not selling them appropriately. Um, but then he started, you know, making these promises or was making the promises that you have this guaranteed return that goes up and to the right. And if compared to the stock market, that's volatile and goes up and down, same graph Bertie Madoff used. Um, and that's the same, that's the hallmark of a Ponzi scheme, no risk and guaranteed returns, right? right? And so uh, that's what he was selling, but viaticals don't live up to that promise. So in the end, he was only selling interests in his checking account. And all the people he had made somewhat of a legitimate viatical investment or other annuity investments for, he was getting them either by forgery or otherwise to cash out their annuities and to put it in his checking account. And so that's how he was uh, going. And he and was this was all around when 2005, 2010 this started or what? So I, our case actually the, the earliest complaints are around 2009. And then um, but because of the lack of bank records prior to 2012, you know we had to start the case around 2012, 2013. so that our, our offense range goes from 2013 to 2019 when he was arrested in March of that year, pursuant to a Dallas County case, which is where uh, the first prosecution started in Dallas County. And he had a Christian radio show or something or a Christian, Christian yes. books and the like too. Could you talk about that, please? So he would get on our local Christian radio stations of several of them, and he was on there three times a week. So if you were a Christian radio listener, you heard him three times a week touting his um, investment prowess. Right. And you would hear him three times a week telling you your investments were completely wrong. And he did it in a banter style with the radio disc jockey uh, or morning hosts. Right. And so um, no one really knew it was an advertisement. And so that was part of it. And then the other part is, I think they trusted someone to do some background, but in reality, he was buying advertising space. Right. And so a lot of the money that went into the Ponzi scheme went to pay for advertising, which is not unusual for a Ponzi scheme because he has to have continual new investors. Right. But who were his, his clients? And finally, too, Lori, you spoke in a very impassioned way about his clients to me earlier this week. School well, teachers, it, uh, yes, I mean, he wasn't wife. he wasn't preying on wealthy people. I mean, he was coming after single moms, school teachers, police officers, uh, ministers, uh, and he would pray with these people. I mean, he would sit down and put their hand, put his hand on their shoulder. They all described this this prayer that he had beautifully worded prayers, um, telling them, yes, this is God's will, purporting to speak on behalf of God into their lives. So oh, to speak. no. 
and so i mean they when you start speaking the language of christianity and quoting verses and sort of that sort of um talk you start to to build a level of trust automatically and so i think these people started off with a level of trust that maybe someone who didn't speak that language wouldn't have and so once he started doing that they didn't look at it as carefully and he took advantage of that. And it's very, very sad. These people were, it wasn't just the money. They're heartbroken. They're, they're, they feel ashamed. They can't tell their friends or their family. Right. And the number one fear is that their kids are going to step in and take over their finances and they'll lose their independence. And so it's a, they're very, the, the most commonly expressed emotion was shame. And that's a horrible thing to hear from your victim who's been taken advantage of. My, in my experience, people call me up and, and they talk to me about these schemes. And I ask them if they ever want to have, uh, you know, do an interview with me or go on the record or something like that for our newspaper, Investment News. And they, and they say, oh, no, I can never do that. I'm too humiliated by the experience. This is what I say at every speech that I do out in the elder community. And that is shame needs secrecy to fester. And so as long as you're willing to stay, stay quiet and stay the victim, that shame is just going to fester. When you come out, you say what happened to you and you let people know and you share with them, it starts to lose its power over you and you can take your power back. And that's what I was so proud of my victims that testified. They came in, they spoke their pain, they spoke their truth, they told the judge, please put them away for life. He should never get out. And that's exactly what happened. And it was $30 million or, or how much money involved here? Lori? So the, there's several numbers, but the total claims made, my, made by investors against uh, the receiver's uh, estate was $38 million. And there's 192 victims. Oh, boy. Boy, this, it's just unconscionable, this guy, Doc Gallagher. He is the lowest of the low, and he sat in court. And although his, his persona was very nice, all super sickly sweet, praying Jesus and all that, in court, his real person came out. A cross-armed, furrowed brow, rolling eye, sarcastic looking, angry man who, who is angry he got caught. We'll end it right there, Lori. Very powerful right. stuff. Thank you for your time. And happy, hey, happy you. trails with your, with your travels in the airport today. Thank you. Well, everybody, that was another episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. So we first want to thank our sponsor, Allworth Financial and the State of the Industry Podcast. We want to um, thank Frank Congemi and Lori Varnell, our very special guests. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. And uh, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple and follow us on Spotify. I think Jeff Benjamin's going to be here next week, but who knows? A lot of people have been traveling this week, it seems. So uh, if you want to reach out to Jeff, tag him on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine's at BD News Guy. Stay tuned, everybody, because we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>